You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. Before the Tiger King, you guys remember that? It was like a whole pandemic thing. Before the Tiger King, there was New York's infamous Tiger Man. The Tiger Man. In 2001, Antoine Yates brought an eight-week Siberian Bengal tiger mix to live with him in his apartment in the neighborhood of Harlem in New York City. Sounds like a good idea. He named the tiger Ming, and it quickly went from bottle feeding to consuming 20 pounds of raw chicken a day. In less than three years, Ming grew to a 425-pound behemoth. Now somehow, the tiger man was able to keep Ming a secret, even though he lived in a densely populated urban apartment. And then two years later, in October of 2003, the tiger man took in a little abandoned kitten named Shadow. Whether it was defending his territory or just wanted a snack, Ming lunged at Shadow. And Antoine tried to intervene. And as he did, he was severely bitten and gnashed on his arm and leg. You can imagine... The amount of blood loss and trauma to his body and he went into shock. And fortunately for him, his brother was already on the way over to see him and found him. Was able to get him out and take him to the hospital there in Harlem. And as they were, uh, uh, you know, bandaging him up and stitching him up, they asked what happened. And he said that he had been attacked by a bulldog. Now... The medical staff there looked at the wounds and the, the size of them and said, you know, bulldogs can attack people, but, but they just can't do this kind of damage. And so they were suspicious uh, because the, the bites and the claw marks looked like they came from a much larger animal. And so they informed the authorities and said, there's something going on here. And so the NYPD were called and they went to his apartment. Now, they didn't just come, you know, bust in the door. They, uh, they drilled a hole through the wall and they inserted one of those small cameras to kind of see what was going on. And it revealed that there was in fact a 425 pound apex predator living inside. And so the police in a commando style operation, I'm not making this up, you can go look it up. They rappelled off the side of the building to his window in order to shoot a tranquilizer dart in the window to subdue Ming. Now the first dart didn't fully take and Ming jumped on the window. And you can see video footage of this, it's all there on the internet. They had to shoot another dart in order to tranquilize and subdue Ming in order to get into the apartment. Now no one was hurt, Ming was transferred to an animal sanctuary to live out the rest of his days. Subsequently, Mr. Yates, the tiger man, was arrested. He pled guilty for reckless endangerment and possession of a wild animal. And in his defense, Mr. Yates said this. I never put the public or another soul in harm's way. I'm not a hardcore criminal. I'm just a person with a passion for animals. It's hard not to laugh when you hear those words. I do not doubt for one second... The tiger man's passion for animals. That's not what's in question today. What is in question is whether or not another soul was in danger. The simple truth is you cannot keep an apex predator, a 425-pound tiger in a New York apartment and honestly think this is a good idea. Nothing could go wrong. No one will be hurt. It was only a matter of time before the tiger decided it was bored with this little experiment. It was only a matter of time before the tiger decided he wanted to break through the door and explore New York City for himself. You see, you can't tame a tiger. Control 
is an illusion. It's only a matter of time before instincts and the nature of a tiger came into conflict with Mr. Yates. I don't care that you raised him as a baby. I don't care how long he knew you. The fundamental nature of a tiger can't be changed, won't change, and in fact cannot change. And this morning as we continue in Romans chapter 8, Paul wants to remind us that the fundamental nature of sin hasn't changed, won't change, and in fact cannot change. Concealing, nurturing, and feeding sin in your life, rationalize it to yourself that no one, including yourself, is in harm's way, is as foolish, careless, and dangerous as keeping a 425-pound apex predator in your tiny apartment. Why? Eventually, tigers attack. They don't care that you used to hold the bottle. They don't care that you bring 20 pounds of raw chicken a day. Eventually, just like a tiger, sin will take its pound of flesh. And the interesting thing about Scripture is that it teaches us that while we cannot tame or control sin, Paul does tell us that we can kill it. It's one of the, the great paradoxes. You can't control or tame sin, but by the power of the Spirit, the Bible tells us that you can kill it. You can put it to death, or as the older saints used to say, you can mortify sin. Today we're looking at Romans 8, chapter, Romans chapter 8, verses 12 to 13. And as we do, Paul's going to tell us three things we need in order to mortify, to kill sin in our life. If you're taking notes, here's our outline today. First, Paul's going to remind us. He's going to say, remember, you are a debtor to grace. You are a debtor to grace. Paul reminds believers that we are no longer debtors to the flesh. We're no longer obligated to obey the flesh. We are now debtors to the grace of God. And that provides the motivation we need for the war against sin. First, remember you are a debtor to grace. Second, Paul asks us to consider the consequence of passivity. Consider the consequence of passivity. He speaks plainly here. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't hold back. He says, if you nurture and cultivate sin, you will die. You will die. Full stop. No caveats. Passivity against sin will lead to death. And third, he says, mortify sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul says you can't control sin, but you can mortify and kill it by the power of the Spirit. If you are driven by a motive of grace and you understand that the threat is real, Paul says take action, wage war against sin. Let's begin in verse 12, work through this text to see uh, how we can put sin to death in our life. Here's our first point, remember that you are a debtor to grace. So then, Paul says, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. So this, this verse 12 begins with the words, so then. Now, verses 12 to 17 marks a new uh, movement in Paul's argument as we walk through um, chapter 8. And verses 12 to 17 are the logical inference of verses 1 to 11. What is a logical inference? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's drawing conclusions from what you know to be true. So in verses 1 to 11, Paul is saying, here's what is true. Here's what is true. Here's what is true. Here's who you are in Christ. And then he says, so, so then here's some implications. If all of these things are true, and they are, then, then, then what happens? What are the implications in your life? See, in verses 1 to 11, Paul drops gospel truth after gospel truth. So if you weren't with us or you need a reminder, let me walk you through again very quickly through verses 1 to 11. In Romans 8, 1, he says, in Christ you are free from eternal condemnation. Verse 2, you've been set free from the damning curse and power of sin. Verse 3, God the Father has executed the penalty for your sin in the crucified flesh of his Son. Verse 4, he says Christ has lived the perfect life of obedience and credited that righteousness to your account. And now, with the gift of the Holy Spirit and the presence in his life, he will help you to learn new desires and to walk in obedience. And then in verses 5 to 11, 
Paul starts to outline that there are two kinds of people in the world. There are those who are in the flesh and there are those who are in the spirit. Every single person, including yourselves, everyone you know, there are categorically only two kinds of people in the world. Those who are in the flesh and those who are in the spirit. There's no middle ground. If you're in the flesh, this is what is true of you. You are dead in your sins. You are held captive in the flesh. And you are unwilling and therefore unable to please God. You're hostile to God, meaning you're enemies. And therefore you are rightly condemned by God. And therefore separated from Him. That's who Paul says, is, that is what is true of those who are in the flesh. But then in those verses he also says, but there are those who are in the spirit and they are spiritually alive to the truth goodness and beauty of jesus that's what the spirit does the spirit illuminates and casts all of the glory on jesus it's like a floodlight the point of a floodlight is not the light in fact if you look at the floodlight it hurts your eyes right the whole point of a floodlight is what it's shining on that's the ministry of the spirit it shines the light so that you see who Jesus is. And those who are in the Spirit are alive to what the Spirit is doing to show us the truth, goodness, and beauty of Jesus. They're also, Paul says, if you're in the Spirit, you're united to Jesus. You're joined to Him in such a uh, unique and, and real kind of way that now what is true of Him becomes true of you. Everything that's true of Jesus is now true of you. One of the best illustrations of what it means to be united to Jesus is what happens when you get on an airplane. Now, the fastest person in here is not able to, to move their body at 550 miles per hour. But you get in an airplane and guess what happens? You start cruising. On your own, you cannot get to an altitude of 35,000 feet. But in a plane, you can. In the same way that when you are joined inside the fuselage of a plane, what is true of that plane now becomes true of you. You are at 35,000 feet. You are moving at 550 miles per hour. What is true of the plane becomes true of you. When you're joined to Jesus, what is true of him now becomes true of you. You're in the spirit and the spirit is in you. His righteousness is your righteousness. His resurrection is your resurrection. And though Paul says your bodies are cursed to die, resurrection life has started to grow inside of you. Because now there's, there's, there's beauty coming from death. There's new life starting to grow. See, if you're in the flesh, you're spiritually dead and physically you are going to die. But if you're in the spirit, though the body is dying, there is new life growing in you, which is evidence of resurrection life to come that is working its way from the future into your life. You start to be drawn to the things of God. You become attentive to the spirit. There's an awareness of sin and a desire to repent, to turn from sin and turn towards the Lord. And one day, Paul says, that same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal body. So though your body will be sown into the ground as imperishable, one day it will be raised out imperishable. Do you see the difference between these two kinds of people? In the flesh or in the spirit. Two unmistakably different statuses as it relates to God. One is hostile to God, one is at peace with God. Two categorically different identities. United to sin and flesh or united to Jesus. Two completely different reasons for living. Two undeniably distinct trajectories. The, the course of their lives are headed in opposite directions that's verses 1 to 11 then Paul says in verse 12 so then so then what are the implications and he says if you are in Christ the spirit of the living God dwells in you and so this is what can be said about you we looked last week and said if that is these you have these two different identities that depending on who you are activity flows out of that 
If you were in the flesh, there will be activity, behaviors, and things that are consistent with life in the flesh. And if you're in the spirit, if you are united to Christ, there will be different activities that flow out from that identity. Because life flows out of your identity. What you do says who you are. So then in verse 12, Paul says, remember you are a debtor. He's having you look back on your life. He's having you look back on these first 11 verses. And to remember being in the flesh or being in the spirit. And at this point, Paul is speaking specifically to Christians. When In verse 9, when he said, and you, he was singling out the readers of this letter and saying, he's assuming for the sake of this letter that, that whoever's reading this is a Christian. He says, remember, you are a debtor. Not to live, uh, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Now, what does that mean? It means that you're no longer obligated to do what your flesh wants anymore. You see, when you were in the flesh, you were obligated to obey the passions and desires of your sinful human nature. There was an obligation, uh, 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 there was a control from the flesh to live according to the flesh. But he's saying, don't you remember? You've been set free from that. You've been delivered from that. Now think about that word debt. The, the very word debt implies an obligation, doesn't it? When you're in debt to someone, there is an obligation of repayment. You owe something. So when I pay my mortgage right now on my house loan, I'm not giving the bank a gift, right? It's not a gift. It's I'm, I'm under an obligation in, uh, to, to repay this mortgage. So much, in fact... It's not a charitable donation. It's an obligatory payment. If I stop paying my mortgage, what happens? What happens? Yeah, they'll take my house. I, they, they might start with a note and say, hey, Mr. Patronello, you missed the payment. That's not happened before, so make sure you get it in. What happens if another month goes by and another month goes by? Eventually, someone will show up to the house and say, not your house anymore. It's been foreclosed. The bank has taken it. You did not fulfill your obligation to your debt. But Paul reminds us, we are no longer under an obligatory debt to the flesh to live in congruence with the flesh. That debt has been paid. We no longer owe the flesh any loyalty, any obedience. And though he doesn't say it explicitly, the implication from the surrounding context and the other side to this. So if we're not debtors to the flesh, the question is, well, then who are we debtors to? And this is where you have to kind of fill in the blanks of what Paul is saying. The implication is you've been set free from the bondage of the flesh. And so now we're debtors to the spirit, to live life in the spirit. That's why we sing, and we're going to do so later today, Oh, to grace how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. And let that grace, Lord, like a fetter, like a chain, bind my wandering heart to thee. Now I want you to think about this kind of debt. Because there, there are certain kinds of debt, there, there, there are different kinds of debt. The Bible describes our relationship to the flesh as one of captivity. It's one of being held captive under a kind of obligation. And that kind of debt doesn't lead to joy. Right? It's, 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 you, you, you repay your debts in those scenarios out of duty or fear of punishment. Right? I don't want to um, uh, fail on my debt to my home because of the consequences. When, 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 I, when I pay that mortgage, I don't do so out of joy. Right? But, in contrast, our debt to the Spirit is a kind of gratitude that comes from being liberated. See, when you're liberated, when you're set free... You feel a sense of obligation to your debtor, not out of uh, a, a, a debt of uh, begrudging duty, but out of gratitude. When someone has given you something, when someone has done something for you that you could not do on your own, you feel an obligation of gratitude to give and to serve because of the, of, of the great joy you feel welling up in your heart from, from an amazing kind of gift. And that's the kind of debt that we have to the Spirit. Not out of duty, but out of delight. Birthed from gratitude. And this freedom we have in Christ 
should become this new motivation for the spirit-filled life of war against sin. John Murray said, How contradictory for us, having been delivered by the Spirit from the law of sin and death and being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, to yield our obedience and service to that from which the Holy Spirit has emancipated us. In other words, he's saying, we've been set free. We now have a choice as it relates to to whom we obey. In the flesh, we had no choice. Constrained and uh, to, to obey the flesh. Now we've been set free and we have a choice. And he's saying, isn't it contradictory to go serve your old master? Why would we do that? Christian, remember, you belong to Christ. He purchased you with his very life. In the greatest act of sacrificial love and grace the world has ever seen, you have been bought by the precious blood of Christ. How can we then go serve our old master? We're not supposed to get over it. We're not supposed to become complacent about it. We shouldn't think of God's grace as old hat. We shouldn't think about it as like, oh yeah, that thing that Jesus did for us. We should never get over the grace of God. See, when there's a lack of motivation in the fight against sin, one of the first questions you should ask yourself is this. Have I taken for granted the sacrifice of Christ? Have I taken it for granted? Have I taken his grace for granted? And almost always, when we lack motivation, it's it right there. We've taken his grace for granted. Christian, let that grace The fact that Christ gave it all for you become a fetter, a chain, a glorious chain that binds our wandering heart to thee. See, if we're going to mortify sin in our life, if we're going to put to death the deeds of the flesh, we need the grace of Christ to motivate us. We must remember we are debtors to grace. Second, we need to consider the consequence of passivity. Look at the first half of verse 13. Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. I'm curious, when you hear those words, what is your immediate impulse? When you hear, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. What are your immediate first thoughts? Is it to minimize it and be like, well, he can't really mean death. It can't be that bad. Is it to start explaining them away? See, this isn't one of those verses where the wording is kind of confusing or you need to know, Pastor, what does it say in the Greek? Help us to understand because it clearly can't mean this. No, no, this is one of those verses where it means exactly what it says. He's direct and straightforward and clear. Look at me. The consequences of living your life according to the flesh is death. It's death. Both death in this life and in the life to come. Death in this life in the sense that your life will be empty and void of the abundant life that Jesus came to give you. And eternal death, meaning the full weight of God's wrath and condemnation on you, separated from him forever. Both death in this life and in the the world to come. Death is a strong word. It is meant to put a healthy fear in us. You know that feeling you get when you're up high and you can see that it's a long way down? I'm not talking about like an irrational fear of heights. I'm talking about that feeling when you know you're up high and you get close to the edge. What do you start doing? You don't walk as freely as you used to, do you? You start checking your footing. You want to make sure, like, I have ample room to put my feet. You start looking for things to hold on to, right? You, you, start, you, you start to feel something in you. What is that? That is your body telling you, if you keep going, you will fall to your certain death. Your body is physically telling you, don't get too close to the edge. Why? Because it's dangerous The consequences of not heeding all that your body is telling you is severe, isn't it? And that's not irrational. I know we can have irrational kinds of fear, right? Like standing on a chair being like, I'm afraid, I'm too high. That that is irrational, right? 
But if you are standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon and looking down, that is a very healthy fear. Because the consequences of not listening to your body are severe. In fact, it's actually the most rational thing in that moment to fear the consequences of falling off of such a sizable height. Why? Because there's no going back. There are dire consequences if you fall from such a height. And that is Paul's point in verse 13. There are dire consequences if you don't take your life seriously. There are dreadful consequences for passivity as it relates to this war against sin. If you take a neutral posture, if you say, well, I'm just not going to do anything. I am not going to wage war. Paul says, you will die. You will die. The Bible is so clear about the nature and trajectory of sin. Listen to how James describes sin. He says in verse, chapter 1, verse 14, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. You want to know where temptation comes from? It's right there in your own heart. You don't have to look outside. You just look right inside. Then that desire, when it's conceived, this is birthing language here, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And when that sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Doesn't that sound like that tiger in Harlem? Right? This little baby, this little cub, he's feeding it with the bottle. It seems so cute. But what happens as it grows, as he nurtures it, as it becomes a 425-pound apex predator? It can attack and kill you. Sin does not stay small and cuddly. Sin grows into an apex predator that will eventually turn on you and attack you. Friends, sin will destroy your life. It always does. It's, it's the nature of sin. It hasn't changed. It will not change. And in fact, it cannot change. Sin will always overpromise and underdeliver. It promises happiness, fulfillment, and satisfaction, but it is only bait. It is only a lure to drag you into its trap. Sin is not a Mistake, it's not a mere mishap. Sin is high treason against God, against the one to whom we owe our highest allegiance and our greatest affection. And Paul says, if you continue in sin, if you live according to the flesh, if you live with this contentment to sin, the Bible says you will die. Unless you think this is just Paul being radical and that Jesus never said such thing. Look at the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Now, let's be good readers. I don't want to see any of you coming back in here all maimed up next week. Okay? He's not saying go and start mutilating your body. He's using hyperbole to make a point. He's not advocating for self-mutilation. He's saying sin is serious and it will lead you right to hell. And so it would be better, it would be better that you limped into heaven blind and maimed than to go to hell fully seeing and with your members intact. What he's saying is, be vigilant. Be radical against your sin. Get to the root issue. Get radical in your fight against sin. Or, Jesus is saying, you will spend an eternity in hell. It's important at this point to address a question that you may be thinking. You might be thinking, well, hold on, pastor. If Christians are saved by grace through faith and not by works, if it's true that he who began a good work in you will see it into completion, and if it's really true, like Paul said in Romans 8, 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, then how can it also be true that if I don't kill my sin, 
in this life I'll end up in hell. Did you follow all that? Essentially the question is, can a genuine Christian lose their salvation because of sin in their life? And it's a great question. And the short answer is no. You really can't have assurance of salvation. If you are, if it's true that you are truly in Christ, then the penalty for all of your sin has been completely and totally paid for once and all in the death of Christ. That said, did you notice, if you read your Bibles, you will find warnings in almost every book of the New Testament that say, don't take sin lightly. Full of warnings to show that there can be those people who profess Christ, who in a lot of ways look like Christians, but in reality show no evidence of it. John Piper is helpful here. He says this, putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, this daily practice of killing sin in your life, is the result of being justified. That's important. It's the result of being justified, and it's the evidence that you are justified by faith alone apart from the works of the law. So if you are making war on your sin and walking by the Spirit, that's how you know you are united with Christ by faith alone. It's evidence. If you've been united to Christ, then his blood and righteousness provide the unshakable ground of your justification. And here's the other side. On the other hand, if you are living according to the flesh, if you are not making war on the flesh and not making a practice out of killing sin in your life, then there is no compelling reason for thinking that you are united to Christ by faith or that you are therefore justified. Here's the summary statement. Killing sin is the effect, not the cause, of our justification. The people who kill sin in their life have been justified, have been joined to Jesus. And in fact, it's the evidence of the fact that those things are true. If you find yourself waging war against sin in your life, it's because the, salva the salvation of Christ that work has begun in you, and it produces this desire to kill sin in your life. But if you find no desire at all to kill sin in your life, then these warnings in the New Testament are going, you should really consider whether or not you have been made alive to the things of Jesus. Go back and look at those two different people, right? Those in the flesh are complacent against sin, don't want to, they're okay with it. There's no conviction at all. But those in the spirit, as they grow to see the goodness, truth, and beauty of Jesus, become disgusted by their sin. They don't want it in their life, and they want to make war against it. You need to hear this, guys. Waging war against sin, getting serious about sin in our life, is not the way we get justified or get saved, or become united to Jesus. Rather, it is the evidence that we are justified, saved, and united to Christ. This is one of those questions I cannot answer for you. If there is no fight against sin, if you look at your life year over year, and there's no growth in grace and no holiness, then you really should question whether or not you belong to Jesus. That is hard, soul-level work. I don't say those things lightly. At the same time, there are eternal consequences involved if we don't. Seven Mile, a life of unchecked sin leads to eternal death. Paul's goal, my goal, is not to worry Genuine Christians over the presence of sin in your life. Christians will have sin in their life until the day of Jesus Christ. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is your fight for it, your complacency over it. A good rule of thumb is to look at your life year over year, not day over day. Christians really can't have assurance of salvation. But assurance is not the same as presumption. 
Don't confuse those two things. James Boyce puts it bluntly. He says, Paul is saying, if you live like a non-Christian, dominated by your sinful nature, rather than living according to the Holy Spirit, you will perish like a non-Christian. Why? Because you are a non-Christian. Coming to church, serving on Sunday, going to a Bible study, these things do not make a Christian. They don't join you to Jesus. Acknowledgement of your sin, confession of, of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, as the only one who could pay the penalty for your sin, that is how you become a Christian. And when that happens and you go from death to life, that new life in you begins to wage war against sin. If when you sin, you feel guilty, you're saddened by it, you repent of it, you seek forgiveness, and you look to make restitution, then, if that's true of you, then you should rest in the forgiveness, mercy, and grace of Jesus. However, if when you sin, you find continually these impulses to justify it, explain it away, you feel no sense of wrong, then you should consider whether or not you really are a Christian. Paul speaks plainly. He doesn't mince words. He says, if we nurture and cultivate sin in our life, we will die. Full stop. Passivity against sin leads to death. Seven mile, if we're going to mortify sin in our life, begins first by remembering that we are debtors to grace. That's the motivation. Second, we consider the consequence of passivity, that there really are dire consequences for inactivity. And third, Paul says, mortify sin by the power of the Spirit. Verse 13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put the deeds of the body, you put the death, the deeds of the body, you will live. The last half of this verse is a call to action. Not to be passive, but to be active. Now, grammatically speaking, it's not an imperative. Remember last week I told you there are no grammatical imperatives in this chapter. He'll get to those later, but right now he doesn't use them. And I think it's, I think it's intentional. Paul is holding out a choice for you. He's not commanding you. He's saying you have two options before you. You can choose death or you can choose life. It reminded me this week of Deuteronomy 30, one of uh, Moses' final sermons. They've just gone through the exodus. They've, they've wandered for 40 years. And now he's at the very end of his life. And this new generation is about to take the promised land. And he knows his days are numbered. He knows he's not entering into the promised land with them. And he wants to, 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 to preach a final sermon to the people of God. He's about to die. And he's going to pass on the baton of leadership to Joshua. And listen to what he says. He says, see, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land you're entering to take possession of. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them. I declare to you today that you shall perish. You, you shall not live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days. That you may dwell in the land that your Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. Paul is saying the same thing. He's saying, Christian, choose life. That you may live. How do we do that? By the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, put to death, mortify the deeds of the flesh. Now this is just one half of a double-sided coin because you've got to both cultivate things in your life. But at this point, Paul is saying, put to death the deeds of the body. 
Now we talked at length about the, the person and work of the Holy Spirit last week. One of the big takeaways was do not conceive of the Holy Spirit as some impersonal force, some kind of energy in your life. The Holy Spirit is a person, a he, not an it. So we don't conjure up the power to defeat sin by incantations and mantras. That's called witchcraft, okay? That, that we're, not, we're not conjuring up the power of the Holy Spirit. Rather, we commune with the Spirit in prayer. We ask for His help to resist temptation. So when you find yourself in a moment of temptation, when something looks appealing to you that you know is poison, and you're having that rationalization in your mind to go, maybe it won't hurt that bad. Maybe it won't be that bad. Maybe I can do it for a little bit and then not. That's when you're supposed to pray and go, Spirit, I am being tempted. Will you help me? That's not an incantation. That's asking for help. You come to the scriptures to be discipled by the Spirit. To read and meditate on God's word. God's word tells us when we give ourselves to the, to the reading and careful study of his word, the spirit will come and help us understand. The spirit is illuminating these words to shine them in our lives so that we take them seriously. So that as we give ourselves to this book, our desires will be shaped by this book. Our activity will be shaped by this book. As we commune with the Spirit, the Spirit brings the power our weakness needs to say no to sin. You cannot do it on your own. You cannot live the Christian life apart from the power of the Spirit. And at the same time, the Spirit won't do it without your effort. Paul says it like this in Philippians 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Listen to this. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Did you catch the, the, both the action? Like work it out. And at the same time, the spirit does it. How does that work? I have no idea. I just know you cannot do this life alone apart from the spirit. And the spirit will not do it for you where you just sit back on the couch and go, I'm not getting up off this couch, sanctify me. It doesn't work like that. We are active and passive at the exact same time. The spirit works in you and yet you've got to move. We have to be active. It takes, friends, look at me, to put the deeds of the body to death. It takes real, genuine effort. It's real work. And yet, it's the Spirit who brings the power we need for victory. He works out that salvation in our lives. And we put in real, genuine work. And as you do, the Spirit will make sure that your desires and efforts have what they need to put the deeds of the body to death. As you give your life to the ministry of the Spirit, you will find that, your, that, that, that you have desire determination and discipline to put to death the deeds of the body. John Owen has one of the best books on the subject, a whole book that's called The Mortification of Sin. I highly recommend it to you. He writes this, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? And then he says, be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. And then here's the line. It basically sums up the whole sermon. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Powerful, point, memorable. That's Romans 8.13. Be killing sin, or it will kill you. That phrase, be killing sin, or it will be killing you, is probably one of the best summaries of Romans 8.13 ever written. And you notice he said, this isn't an occasional thing. This isn't a seasonal thing. Like every once in a while... Give some thought to it. No, he says it's a daily thing. It requires daily vigilance. And Paul is saying the spirit will enable us to kill the deeds of the flesh. I want you to have in your mind this imagery of a warrior in battle. Warrior slaying the deeds of the body. Friends, our sinful flesh, our sinful desires are no longer a master we heed but an enemy we need to vanquish far too many times we treat our old 
desires our old flesh as a friend when we should see him as an enemy. Ed Welch says there is a mean streak to authentic self-control. Self-control is not for the timid. When we want to grow in it, not only do we nurture an exuberance for Jesus Christ, we also demand of ourselves a hatred for sin. The only possible attitude toward out-of-control desire is a declaration of all-out war. There's something about war that sharpens the senses. You hear a twig snap or the rustling of leaves, and now you're in attack mode. Someone coughs, and you're ready, ready to pull the trigger. Even after days of little or no sleep, war keeps us vigilant. We must have a wartime mentality against sin. There's a kind of vigilance and attention that a soldier has in war. That, that's the kind of mentality we need to have as it relates to sin. Now I want you to notice that Romans 8 doesn't focus a lot on techniques and practical how-tos. It focuses on motivation and identity. Where's your motivation and who are you? Because ultimately if your mind is not convinced of the desire of the dire consequences and your heart is not convinced of the devastation of sin, then practical tips and helps won't do any good. Trust that the Spirit will come alongside you and do His part and bring about your sanctification. He will do His part. The question is, will you do yours? Will you be vigilant? Will you be active in the fight against sin? See, kill sin, mortify sin, put to death. These are all action words, aren't they? They're not passive words. Christ has given us his righteousness, but the fact of that doesn't free us from the necessity of putting sin to death. It would be wrong to think, well, I have the righteousness of Christ, so I don't need to do anything. That is the statement of someone who is not yet saved. But rather, the fact that we have Christ's righteousness is what makes it possible for us to do so. We've been set free. We've been made alive. And now, through the ministry of the Spirit, we can wage war against sin. And fortunately, because of the presence of the Spirit in your life, you're not left on your own. You're not left to do this out of your own power and your own strength. You are given new desires and fight from the Holy Spirit. Paul David Tripp says... I need the presence and power of the Holy Spirit living inside me. Why? Because sin kidnaps the desires of my heart, blinds my eyes, and weakens my knees. My problem is not just the guilt of sin. It's the inability of sin as well. So what does God do? He graces his children with the convicting, sight-seeing, desire-producing, and strength-affording presence of the Spirit. If you look in your life and you see no victory over sin, my guess is, my Based on the, the teaching of scripture is that you're trying to do this life avoid from, avoid from the spirit. You're doing it on your own. You need the sight seeing, giving, the desire producing, strength affording presence of the spirit. Now before we close, I want to give us some direction on how to do this in our lives. If your heart is convicted against sin and you desire to be vigilant, here are some things that will help you. First, don't give sin an opportunity. You ever heard the phrase, no quarter given to soldiers? Make no provision. Don't give sin an opportunity. Don't house and feed sin in your life. Later in Romans 13, Paul's going to say, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. In other words, he says, don't put yourself in a position to be tempted. Like we were teaching our children to pray earlier, lead us not into temptation. How contradictory would it be to pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation, and then go walk right into temptation. The faithful will strive to structure their lives so they face fewer, not greater, temptations. So when you sin, if there is some besetting sin in your life, consider what, the, like the times and the conditions and the, and the company of that sin. My guess is there's a pattern. Change the pattern. Don't put yourself in tempting situations. So consider, are there times when you're more likely to sin? Are there situations where you're more susceptible? Reflect on the time, conditions, and company and change those habits and patterns so that you're not 
frequently coming into those opportunities for sin. Second, plant a garden if you don't want weeds. If you have weeds and you do the good work of pulling them out, but you don't plant anything in their place, you know what happens? They just come right back. Even if you pull up the, the roots, why? Because fertile soil, it, like weeds, just they're just looking for that. You've got to put something in its place. For every sinful habit that you seek to break in your life, replace it with a godly habit. Don't just do the work of pulling, also do the work of planting. And third, ask deeper questions. Most of the time when we try to fight sin in our lives, we're only uh, dealing with the stuff on the surface. It would be like picking fruit from a tree and thinking it will die. You can pick fruit from a tree all day long, but if you want to get rid of a tree, what do you have to do? You got to get it at the roots. You got to dig deep. You got to get all of the roots out of there or it will just come back. You can't even just cut it at the, at the, at the uh, surface, right? Eventually, given enough time, the tree will grow back. Ask deeper questions. What are the desires leading to those kinds of fruit? Ask yourself, what comfort am I seeking? In what ways am I trying to control? What power do I seek? What approval am I looking for? Ask deeper questions. Seven mile, if we're going to control, I mean, if we're going to mortify sin in our life, if we're going to put the deeds of the flesh to death, you've got to be motivated by grace. That is the only lasting real motivation. You've got to be compelled by the gospel. The motive to fight sin is grace. Second, you need to consider the consequences that if you don't, you will die. Passivity will lead to death. And third, we need to get to work. It is not easy. It takes real, genuine effort. So let's work. Let's put the deeds of the body to death, knowing that we're not left alone. We have the ministry and presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Motive is grace, the threat is real, and the solution is all-out war. Let's pray.